Chapter Seventeen of Murder at Bridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Murder at Bridge by Anne Austen. Chapter Seventeen. It was nearly nine o'clock Monday morning, and Special Investigator Dundee sat alone in the District Attorney's office, impatiently awaiting Sanderson's arrival. Coroner Price, with the approval of Captain Strawn of the Homicide Squad, had set the inquest into the murder of Juanita Lee Selim for ten o'clock, and there was much that Dundee wished to say to the district attorney before that hour arrived. When the thoroughly tired and dispirited young detective had returned to his apartment late Sunday afternoon, after having seen Ralph Hammond completely exonerated of any possible complicity in the murder of Nita Selim, he had found a telegram from the district attorney, filed in Chicago. Called Chicago, serious illness of mother. Stop. Returning Hamilton, 8.10, Monday morning. Stop. See by papers you are on Selim job. Stop. Good, but watch your step. Sanderson. Well, and Dundee grinned ruefully, he had been on the job all right, but would Sanderson consider that he had watched his step? At any rate, he had been thorough, he congratulated himself, as he weighed the big manila envelope containing his own transcription of the copious shorthand notes he had taken during the first hours of the investigation. A smaller envelope held Nita's tell-tale check-book, her amazing last will and testament, and the still more startling note she had written to Lydia Carr. The last two Dundee had retrieved from Carraway only this morning, after having submitted them to the fingerprint expert on Sunday. Carraway's report had rather dashed him at first, for it proved that no other hands than Nita's, and his own, of course, had touched either envelope or contents. But he was now content to believe that Nita herself had unsealed the envelope she had inscribed, to be opened in case of my death. Why? Had she been moved by an impulse to give a clue to the identity of the person to whom she stood in fear, but had stifled the impulse? Strawn had said, too, that the little rosewood desk had been in a fairly orderly condition, before his big official hands had clawed through it in search of a clue or the gun itself. Well, Strawn had been properly chagrined when Dundee had produced the will and note. Why did she stick it away in a pack of new envelopes, if she wanted it to be found? Strawn had demanded irritably, and had not been appeased by Dundee's suggestion, because she did not want Lydia, in dusting the desk, to see it and be alarmed. Yes, he had been busy enough, but what actually had he to show for his industry? He had worked up three good cases, the first against Lydia Carr, the second against Dexter Sprague, and the third against Ralph Hammond, only to have them knocked to pieces almost as fast as he had conceived them. Of course Lydia Carr might be lying to give Sprague an alibi, but Dundee was convinced she was telling the truth, and that she hated Sprague too much to fake an alibi for him. Of course there was always Judge Marshall, but— Through the closed door came sounds which Dundee presently identified as connected with Penny Crane's arrival. The emphatic click of her heels, the quick opening and shutting of desk drawers. The downhearted young detective debated the question of taking his perplexities out to her, but decided against it. She probably wanted to hear no more of his theories, but was undoubtedly burning with righteous indignation against him because of Ralph Hammond. Did she still consider herself engaged to Ralph, in spite of the fact that young Hammond had gallantly insisted upon releasing her from her promise, as soon as he suspected that it had been given merely to prove her faith in his innocence? 
It was a decidedly unhappy young detective whom Sanderson greeted upon his arrival at nine o'clock. The new district attorney, who had held office since November, was a big, good-natured, tolerant man, who looked younger than his thirty-five years because of his freckles and his always rumpled mop of sandy hair. But those who sought to take advantage of his good nature in the courtroom found themselves up against as keen a lawyer and prosecutor as could be found in the whole state, or even in the Middle West. "'Well, boy,' he greeted Dundee genially, but with an undertone of solemnity in his rich, jury-swaying baritone. "'Looks like we've got a sensational murder on our hands. It's not every day Hamilton can rate a headline like Broadway Bell Murdered at Bridge, to quote a Chicago paper, but I'm afraid there's not enough mystery in it to suit your tastes.' Dundee grinned wryly. "'I've been pretty down in the mouth all morning, because there's a little too much mystery, Chief.' "'Fairly open and shut, isn't it?' Sanderson asked, obviously surprised. "'New York gets too hot for this Selim baby. Probably mixed up with some racketeer, racketeers being the favorite boyfriends of Broadway Bells, if one can believe the tabloids. Lois Dunlap offers her a job to organize a little theater in Hamilton, which the fair Nita would certainly have described as a hick town, and which she wouldn't have been found dead in if she could have helped it. And the district attorney grinned at his own witticism. But Broadway Nita jumps at it. Her racketeer sweetie has a long arm, however, and Nita gets hers. Justly enough, probably. But I wish to the Lord she had chosen some other town to hide in. Lois Dunlap is the finest woman in Hamilton, but she's too damned promiscuous in her friendships. As it is now, some of the best friends I have in the world are mixed up in this mess, even if it is only as innocent victims of circumstance. Until then Dundee had let his chief express his pent-up convictions without interruption, and indeed Sanderson's courtroom training had fitted him admirably for long speeches. But he could keep silent no longer. "'That is what has been worrying me, chief,' he interrupted. "'Captain Strawn has given the papers very little real information, but the truth is I am afraid one of your friends was not an innocent victim of circumstance.' District Attorney Sanderson sat down abruptly in the swivel chair at his desk. "'Just what do you mean, Dundee?' "'I mean, I am convinced that one of Mrs. Selim's guests was her murderer, but I'd like to tell you the whole story and let you judge for yourself.' "'My God!' Sanderson ejaculated. Slowly he drew out a handkerchief and mopped his freckled brow. "'If I hadn't had a good many years of experience with criminals, Dundee, I'd say it is obvious on the face of it that none of those four men—Judge Marshall, Tracy Miles, Johnny Drake, Clive Hammond— could have committed such a cheap, sensational crime as murdering a hostess during a bridge game. Not that I haven't wanted to commit murder myself over many a game of bridge, he added, with the irrepressible humor for which he was famous. Then he groaned, the rueful twinkle still in his eye. I'm afraid we're in for a lot of gruesome kidding. Why, last night, in the club car of my train, three tables of bridge players could scarcely play a hand for wisecracking about the dangers of being dummy. "'Well, boy, now that I've talked myself past the worst shock, suppose you give me the lowdown. But I'll warn you I'm going to take a powerful lot of convincing.' Painstakingly, and in the greatest detail, Dundee told the whole story, beginning with his arrival Saturday evening at the Selim house, including the ghastly replaying of the death hand at bridge, a phrase, by the way, which the prosecutor instantly adopted, and ending with Ralph Hammond's establishing of an alibi— to the entire satisfaction of Captain Strawn, as well as of Dundee himself. 
He was interrupted frequently, of course, scoffingly at first, then with deepening solemnity and respect on the part of the district attorney. "'Let me see the plan of the house again,' he said, when Dundee had finished. "'Also that table you've worked up, showing the approximate time and order of arrival of the four men. Thanks. Hmm. Hmm. You see, sir,' Dundee repeated at last, "'the list of possible suspects includes Lydia Carr, Dexter Sprague, John C. Drake, Judge Marshall, Polly Beale, Flora Miles, Janet Raymond, Clive Hammond. But Polly and Clive were in the solarium together all the time, Sanderson objected. So they said, Dundee agreed, but it is a very short trip from the solarium by way of the side porch into Nita's bedroom. And either Polly Beale or Clive Hammond could have made that trip, on the pretext of speaking to Nita about Ralph. Motive, murder to end blackmail. Naturally, such a theory would not include both of them, but if one of them was being blackmailed and made use of the pretext of warning Nita of Ralph's overwrought condition, Sprague's your man, Sanderson interrupted with relief. Motive, jealousy because Nita was ditching him to marry Ralph. As for the gun and silencer, it seems pretty clear to me that Nita herself stole it from Judge Marshall, and that Sprague got it away from her. You say the maid, Lydia, went upstairs to tell Sprague he had to pack his things and take them away. For good. Very well. Sprague goes down the back stairs with the gun in his pocket, through the back hall into Nita's bedroom, shoots her, bumps into the lamp, goes out by the back door, and comes around front to join the party. You say yourself he has admitted to everything but the trip to Nita's room and the shooting, even to sneaking back to get his bag which I believe also contained the gun, until he had a chance to dispose of it on his way to his hotel in Hamilton. Dundee shook his head. I'd like to agree, Chief, but I believe Lydia is telling the truth. She says she was in the upstairs bedroom with Sprague and remained behind only two or three minutes at most, to put his shaving kit into the packaged bag, and to clean up the bathroom basin. On her way down the back stairs, she says she heard Lois Dunlap's second ring and went to answer it. Sprague and Janet Raymond, with whom Janet says he stopped to talk a minute on the front porch, were in the dining-room before Lydia entered it. I'm convinced Lydia hates Sprague, and would be glad to believe him guilty. No, Mr. Sanderson, I don't believe Sprague did it, but I do believe it was Sprague's revenge that Nita was afraid of when she made her will Friday night. Naturally, she figured she'd have time to tell the person she was blackmailing that she was through with him, or her— but I believe Sprague and Nita were lovers, even partners in blackmail, and that she feared he would kill her when he knew she was going to marry Ralph Hammond and give up their source of income. Sanderson considered for a long minute, pulling at his full lower lip. Well, thank God for those precious footprints Strawn is building on. Don't think I fail to follow your reasoning that the crime must have been committed in the bedroom, and not from the window-sill, but those footprints may save us yet, and will certainly get us through the inquest. You agree, of course, that none of all this you've told me must be hinted at during the inquest? Good. Let's be going. It's nearly ten. Dundee's whole soul revolted at the very thought of the barbaric farce of an inquest. The small morgue chapel crowded to the doors with goggle-eyed, blood-loving humanity, the stretcher with its sheeted corpse, reporters avid of sensation and primed with questions which, if answered by indiscreet witnesses, would defeat the efforts of police and district attorney. News photographers with their insatiable cameras aimed at every person connected with the case in any way. 
Mercifully, this particular inquest upon the body of Juanita Lee Salim promised to be quickly over. For Coroner Price, in conference with Sanderson, Dundee, and Captain Strawn, had gladly agreed to call only those witnesses and extract from them only such information as the authorities deemed advisable. Lydia Carr, whose black veil had defeated the news camera leveled at her poor scarred face, was the first witness called by Coroner Price, and she was required for the single purpose of identifying the body as that of her mistress. To two perfunctory questions, have you any information to give this jury regarding the cause and manner of the deceased's death, and have you any personal knowledge of the identity of any person, man or woman, of whom the deceased stood in fear of her life? Lydia answered a flat no, and was then dismissed. Karen Marshall, looking far too young to be the wife of the elderly ex-judge Hugo Marshall, was the second witness called. Dr. Price guided her gently to a brief recital of her discovery of the dead body of her hostess, emphasizing only the fact that, so far as she could see, the bedroom was unoccupied except by the corpse at the time of the discovery. He then handed her the photostatic copy of a blueprint of the ground floor of the Selim house, with a penciled ring drawn around the bedroom. Karen falteringly identified it, as well as the pencil-drawn furniture, and was immediately dismissed, to the packed rows of spectators and reporters. Dr. Price himself took the stand next, and described, in technical terms, the wound which had caused death and the caliber of the bullet he had extracted from the dead woman's heart. I find also from the autopsy, he concluded, that the bullet traveled a downward slanting path. I should add, moreover, that I have made exact mathematical calculations, using the position of the body and of the wound as a basis, and found that a line drawn from the wound, and extended at the correct slant, ends at a point fifty-one point eight inches high, upon the right-hand side of the frame of the window nearest the porch door and he obligingly passed the marked blueprint among the jury. When it was in his own hands again, he added, it is impossible to state the exact distance the bullet traveled, more nearly than to say the shot was fired along the line I have indicated, at a distance of not more than fifteen feet, and not less than ten. Captain Strawn rose and was permitted to question the witness. Dr. Price, that blueprint shows that the bedroom is fifteen feet in width, don't it? That is correct. Have you also measured the height of that window sill from the floor? I have, the coroner answered. The height from floor to sill is twenty-six inches. Now, doctor, from your calculations, would it be possible for a man crouching in the open window to fire a shot along the path you have calculated? It would, Dr. Price answered. But as I have pointed out, it is impossible for me to say at exactly what distance from the body the shot was fired. But Strawn, of course, was amply satisfied. And so were Dundee and the district attorney, for it suited their purposes admirably for the public to be convinced at this time that an intruding gunman had murdered Nita Selim. Captain Strawn, sworn in, told briefly of his being called to the scene of the crime, of the activities of Carraway, the fingerprint expert, and of the exhaustive search of his squad of detectives. Did you find any person concealed upon the premises, that is, within the house itself, or in the garage or on the grounds? Dr. Price asked. No, sir. Did you or your men discover the weapon with which the deceased was killed? No, sir. Did you question all persons in the house at the time of the crime, as to whether or not a shot had been heard? I did. The answer in every case was that they heard no shot. And you also questioned every person present in an effort to place responsibility for the death of Mrs. Selene? 
I did. I couldn't find that anyone present had anything to do with it. Who were those persons? Dr. Price then asked. Judge and Mrs. Hugo Marshall, Mr. and Mrs. Tracy A. Miles, Mr. and Mrs. John C. Drake, Mrs. Peter Dunlop, Miss Janet Raymond, Miss Polly Beale, Miss Penelope Crane, Mr. Clive Hammond, Mr. Dexter Sprague of New York, and Mrs. Selim's maid, Lydia Carr. Captain Strawn answered promptly, rolling out the names of Hamilton's elect with sonorous satisfaction, which obviously had the desired effect in convincing the jury that not among those proud names, at least, could be found the name of the murderer. Did you find on the premises any clue which you consider of importance to this jury? I did. A bunch of footprints under the window you've been talking about. Here are life-size photographs of them, doctor, and the rambler rose vines that climb up the outside of the window had been torn. After the photographs had been duly inspected by the jury of six, Dr. Price said, That is all, and thank you, Captain Strawn. Mr. Dundee? As had been agreed between the coroner and the district attorney, Dundee's testimony, after the preliminary questions, was confined to the offering of Nita Salim's last will and testament, and the note to Lydia. The reporters, who had obviously feared that nothing new would eventuate, sat up with startled interest. Then their pencils flew, as Dundee read the two documents, after he had told when and where he had discovered them. As District Attorney Sanderson had said, "'Better give the press something new to chew on, but for God's sake don't mention that checkbook of Nita's. It's dynamite, boy, dynamite!' While the morgue chapel was still in a buzz of excitement, Dundee was dismissed, and District Attorney Sanderson requested an adjournment of the inquest for one week. The police were urging the crowd upon its way before it became fully aware that it had been cheated out of the pleasure of hearing, at first hand, the stories of that fatal bridge and cocktail party from the guests themselves. "'Tell the carwoman I want to speak to her,' Sanderson directed Dundee. "'She'll thank you for rescuing her from the reporters.' As Dundee pushed his way through the jam, he heard a reporter earnestly pleading with Lois Dunlap. "'But I'm sure you can remember the cards each player held in that death hand, Mrs. Dunlap.' Cheerfully sure that he could trust Lois Dunlap's discretion and distaste for publicity, Dundee went on, grinning at the reporter's use of his own lurid phrase. Two minutes later Sanderson, Strawn, and Dundee were closeted in Dr. Price's own office with Lydia Carr. First, Lydia,' began Sanderson, "'I want to warn you to give the reporters no information at all regarding the nature or extent of your mistress's bequest.' "'It was little enough she had, poor girl, beyond her clothes and a few pieces of jewelry,' Lydia answered stubbornly. "'Are you going to let me do what she told me to do in that note? Not that I hold with burning. I see no reason why you should not take charge of the body, Lydia, and arrange it immediately for cremation. Do you, Captain Strawn?' "'No, sir, the quicker the better.' "'Then, Lydia, if Captain Strawn will send you out to the Selim house with one of his boys, you may get the dress described in Mrs. Selim's note.' "'And the curls she cut off, and had made into switches,' Lydia interrupted. "'I can't dress my poor girl's hair in a French roll without them.' "'The curls, too,' Sanderson agreed. "'Now, as to the cremation—' "'Mrs. Miles let me come in early to see about that,' Lydia interrupted again. "'They can do it this afternoon, and you don't need to worry about the expense. "'I've got money enough of my own to pay my girl's funeral expenses.' "'Good,' Sanderson applauded. The will shall be probated as soon as possible, of course, but it makes it simpler if you will pay the necessary expenses now. Just a minute, Chief, Dundee halted the district attorney as he was about to leave. Under the circumstances, I think it highly advisable that we get pictures of the burial dress. 
I suggest you have Lydia bring the things to your office before she lays out the body, and that Carraway photograph the dress there from all angles. I should also like to have a picture of the body after Lydia has finished her services. The maid's scarred face flushed a deep, angry red, but she offered no protest when the district attorney accepted both of Dundee's suggestions. "'Then you'll have Carraway with his camera at my office in about an hour?' Sanderson turned to Captain Strawn. "'Let's say twelve o'clock. By the way, Lydia, you may bring in with you the few pieces of jewelry you mentioned. I'll keep them safely in my offices until the will is probated and they are turned over to you.' "'I don't know where she kept them,' Lydia answered. "'What?' exclaimed Bonnie Dundee. I said, I don't know where she kept her jewelry, Lydia Carr retorted. It wasn't worth much, not a hundred dollars altogether, I'll be bound, because Nita sold her last diamond not a week before we left New York. She owed so many bills then that the money she got for directing that play at the Foresight School hardly made a dent on them. Do you know whether the jewelry was kept in the house or in a safe deposit box? Dundee asked, excitement sharpening his voice. It must have been in the house, because she wore the different pieces any time she pleased the maid answered. I didn't ask no questions, and I didn't happen to see her get it out or put it away. I didn't ever do much ladies' maid work for her, like dressing her or fixing her hair, just kept her clothes and the house in order, and did what little cooking there was to do. Her dressing-table? Dundee prodded. Her desk? The maid shook her head. I was always straightening up the drawers in both her dressing-table and her desk, and she didn't keep the jewelry in either one of them places. "'Captain Strawn, when you searched the dressing-table and desk for the gun, or anything of importance, did you have any reason to suspect a secret drawer in either of them?' "'No, Bonnie. They're just ordinary factory furniture. I tapped around for a secret drawer, of course, but there wasn't even any place for one,' Strawn assured him with an indulgent grin. "'I want to see Penny Crane,' Dundee cried, making for the door. "'Then you'd better come along to the courthouse with me,' Sanderson called after him. I sent her back to the office as soon as the inquest was adjourned. The two men passed through the now-deserted morgue chapel and almost bumped into a middle-aged man, obviously of the laboring class, in spite of his slicked-up Sunday appearance. "'You're the district attorney, ain't you, sir?' he addressed Sanderson in a nervous, halting undertone. "'Yes. What is it?' "'I come to the inquest to give some information, sir, but it was adjourned so quick I didn't have time—' "'Who are you?' Sanderson interrupted impatiently. "'I'm Rollins, sir. I worked for the poor lady, Mrs. Selene, gardening one day a week. "'Come to my office,' Sanderson commanded quickly, as a lingering reporter approached on a run. "'No, no, I'm sorry, Harper,' he said hastily, cutting into the reporter's questions. "'Nothing new. You may say that the police have thrown out a dragnet,' and he grinned at the trite phrase, "'for the gunman who killed Mrs. Selene, and will offer a reward for the recovery of the weapon, a Colt's thirty-two equipped with a Maxim silencer.' "'Come along, George, and I'll explain just what Mrs. Sanderson and I have in mind.' The district attorney and Dundee strode quickly away, and the man Rollins, after a moment of indecision, trotted after them. "'I don't understand, sir, and my name ain't George. It's Elmer. You don't have to understand anything except that you're not to answer any questions that any reporter asks you,' Sanderson retorted. When the trio entered the reception room of the district attorney's suite in the courthouse, Sanderson paused at Penny Crane's desk. Bring in your notebook, Penny. This man has some information he considers important. A minute later, Sanderson had begun to question his voluntary but highly nervous witness. Your name? It's Elmer Rollins, like I told you, sir, the man protested, and flinched as Penny recorded his words in swift shorthand. It was my wife as made me come. She said, as long as me and her knowed I didn't do nothing wrong, I'd ought to come forward and tell what I knowed. 
"'Yes, yes,' Sanderson encouraged him impatiently. "'You say you worked for Mrs. Salima's gardener one day a week?' "'Yes, sir, but I tended to her hot water and her garbage, too. Twice a day it was I had to go and stoke the little laundry heater that heats the hot water tank in summertime when the steam furnace ain't being used. I live about a mile beyond the crane place, that is, the house the poor lady was killed in. Did you come to stoke the laundry heater Saturday evening?' Dundee interrupted. "'Excuse me, sir,' he turned to the district attorney, "'but this is the first time I've seen this man.' "'No, sir. I didn't stoke it Saturday night,' Rawlins answered uneasily. "'You see, I was coming up the road to do my chores at half-past six, like I always do, but before I got to the house I seen a lot of policemen's cars and motorcycles, and I didn't want to get mixed up in nothing, so I turned around and went home again. I didn't know what was up, but when me and the wife went into Hamilton Saturday night in our fliver, we seen one of the extries, and read about how the poor lady was murdered. But that ain't what I was getting at, sir.' "'Well, what are you getting at?' Sanderson urged. "'Well, the extry said the police had found some footprints under the frontmost of them two side windows to Miss Salim's bedroom, and went on to talk about the rose-vines being tore, and straight off I said to the missus, "'Them's my footprints, Minnie. Minnie's my wife's name.' "'Your footprints?' Sanderson ejaculated, then shook with silent laughter. "'There goes Strawn's case, Bonnie.' but immediately he was serious again, as the import of this new evidence came to him. "'Tell us about it, Rawlins. When did you make those footprints?' "'Friday, sir. That's the day I gardened for Miss Salim. You see, sir, the poor little lady told me she was kept awake nights when there was a high wind, by the rose-vines tapping against the windows. Says she, "'I think there's something trying to get into my room, Elmer.' And I could see the poor little thing was mighty nervous anyway, so I didn't waste no time." I cut away a lot of the rose-vine, and burned it when I was burning the garbage and papers in the cinerator out back. "'Is that all, Rollins?' Sanderson asked. "'About all that mounts to anything,' the laborer deprecated. "'But they was something else that struck me as a little funny, when I come to think of it.' "'Well?' Sanderson prodded, as the man halted uncertainly. "'Well, it's like I told you. It was my job to burn the papers. That scar-face maid of Miss Salim's put everything, garbage and trash, in a big garbage can outside the back door, and I burnt em up. So I was kinder surprised Saturday morning, when I went to stoke up the laundry heater, to find somebody'd been meddlin' with my drafts, and had let the fire go clean out. I had to clean out the ashes and build a new fire. You're trying to say, I suppose, that you could tell by the ashes that someone had been burning papers in the laundry heater? Sanderson asked, with a quick glance at Dundee's tense face. "'That's right, sir,' Rawlins agreed eagerly. "'You know what kind of ashes a mess of paper makes. Layers of white ashes, sir, that kind of looks like papers yet.' "'Yes, I know. And you found layers of white ashes, which you took particular pains to clean out?' Sanderson asked bitterly. "'Yes, sir, so as I could build a new fire. Did you speak to the maid, asked her if she'd been meddling with your drafts?' "'Yes, sir, I did,' the man answered with a trace of the belligerence he had undoubtedly shown to Lydia." She said she didn't open no dampers, claimed the heater was the same as usual when she left Friday night to go to a movie. So I reckon it was the poor lady herself, burning up love letters, maybe, or some such truck. You're to keep your reckons to yourself, Rollins, Sanderson cut in emphatically. Remember now, you're not to tell anybody else what you've just told me. If that's all, you can go now, and I'm much obliged to you. Leave your address with the young lady here. You'll be needed later, of course." The relieved man hurried out of the room on Penny's heels. Sanderson shrugged, then, when the door had closed, began heavily. 
It looks like you're right, Bonnie, about that blackmail business. As the astute Rawlins says, love letters, maybe, or some such truck. Of course, it all fits in with your theory that Nita had made up her mind to reform, marry Ralph Hammond, and be a very good girl indeed. All right, you can have Penny in now. I think I know pretty well what you're going to ask her. And I may as well tell you that when Roger Crane skipped town with some securities he was known to possess, he hadn't got them from a safe deposit box, because he didn't have one. And Sanderson pressed a button on the edge of his desk. Penny, do you know whether there is a concealed safe in the Salim house? The girl, startled, began to shake her head, then checked herself. Not that I ever saw, or knew of, when Dad and Mother and I lived there, but— She hesitated, her cheeks turning scarlet. "'Out with it, Penny,' Sanderson urged, his voice very kind. "'It's just that, if you really think there's a secret hiding-place in the house, I believe I understand something that puzzled me when it happened,' Penny confessed, her head high. "'I was at the country club one night, a Saturday night, when the whole crowd is usually there for dinner and dance. I'd been dancing with—with with Ralph, and when the music stopped we went out on the porch, where several of our crowd were sitting. It was—just two or three weeks after—' after Dad left town. Lois wouldn't let me drop out of things. Anyway, it was dark, and I heard Judge Marshall saying something about the simplest and most ingenious arrangement you ever saw. Of course, that's where the rascal kept his securities. I knew they were talking about Dad, from the way Judge Marshall shut up and changed the subject as soon as he saw me. "'Who was on the porch, Penny?' Dundee asked tensely. "'Why, let's see.' Flora, and Johnny Drake, and Clive, she answered slowly. I think that was all, besides Judge Marshall. The others hadn't come out from dancing. Of course I don't know whether or not it was some arrangement in the house. Where are you going, boy? Sanderson checked Dundee, who was already on his way to the door. To find that gun, of course. Well, if it's tucked away in the simplest and most ingenious arrangement you ever saw, it will stay put for a while, Sanderson said. Lydia's due here within half an hour, and you don't want to miss her, do you? End of chapter 17